This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.12, The Carmon Line, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and pretty glad I didn't accept that part-time job as a mentor to at-risk Jareds. And I'm Nina, I come up with the best nicknames for unnamed characters. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 156 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Derek S., Andrew B., John O., Looney Spoon, Renato R., Grant M., and One at Each. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com patreon. And a special shout out to some listeners who have recently reviewed us on iTunes. Arashi500, MSN100 Shower Custom, Sparrow X Scarlet, Silver Spork Hybrid, Haro Truther87, and Zachary DCV. Thank you all for your reviews. Today is August 17th. 2019, and that means two weeks from today we will hit a really exciting milestone. One year of Mobile Suit Breakdown. We uploaded our first episode on September 1st, 2018. Most podcasts don't make it past half a dozen episodes, so we're quite proud. We are also incredibly grateful. You all stuck around through those early episodes and their highly variable audio quality. You've encouraged us, shared the podcast with friends, written reviews, sent us sources for research, and have been a wonderful community. So to celebrate our one-year podversary, and to thank and acknowledge our listeners, we have two exciting things planned. The first is that we are going to release one of this year's patron-only bonus episodes to the public, and you, yes, you, can vote on which one you want to hear. We will link to the poll in the show notes and on our social media, or you can find it by going to gundampodcast.com slash Patreon and clicking posts. The poll will close on August 31st, and we are going to release the episode on September 1st. So get your votes in now. The second exciting thing we have planned is that to celebrate and thank all of the patrons who've supported us through this first year, anyone who is a patron as of 12.01 a.m. September 1st, that's New York Standard Time, will receive a personalized certificate recognizing them as a founding patron. $1 patrons will receive a digital certificate, while $5 and up patrons will receive a physical one. Tom designed these himself, they're beautiful, and they will be printed on high-quality paper and hand-signed by both of us. And all patrons who are pledging $5 or more as of September 1st will also receive our limited-edition Mobile Suit Breakdown Season 1 enamel pin. 
There are only 298 of these in existence, and we are never, ever going to make any more. New seasons will get new pins. When we made that first episode, we were operating on a lot of hope. Hope that people would be interested in what we have to say. Hope that we'd be able to figure out how to record and edit decent-sounding audio in a New York apartment. And hope that Mobile Suit Breakdown would eventually become something that we could make a living doing. We still have a long way to go before we achieve all of our goals on the podcast, and I may never be satisfied with the audio quality. But we've come so far already, and we couldn't have done it without all of you. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 11, Entering the Atmosphere, or Taikiken Totsu Niu, and our research covers the Karman Line, Paradrop Operations, and Balutes. But first, let's talk about that episode name, because this one wins the Mobile Suit Breakdown Coming Home Prize for Missed Opportunities in Title Translation. Taikiken is straightforward enough, it means atmosphere, but Totsunyu means rushing into, breaking into, storming, or plunging into war or the like, or even embarking on a new venture. This would have been much more fun as storming the atmosphere. <laughs> or breaching the atmosphere. Entering the atmosphere, while technically correct, doesn't have the same spirit. Doesn't feel as martial. One of these days, some angry translator is going <laughs> to be like, oh, it's very easy for you guys to pick apart my translation. Armchair translators are the worst. <laughs> we don't blame the translators. They are working under incredibly difficult conditions and rarely get to make the kinds of important decisions that affect these outcomes. Also, when the translators are listening to us, then we'll know we've really made it. <laughs> Those goalposts are going to continue to move. <laughs> what is the ultimate goal? When Tomino's wife is listening to it? <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Does she even exist? Is she real? Yes. Are you sure? No. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into the meat of this week's episode, first we have the Titans News Network to remind you what happened last week. Welcome back to Temptation Watch here at TNN, as the search for the missing GRIPS Spaceline's shuttle Temptation continues into its fifth day. The families of passengers and crew on the shuttle are reportedly losing hope that the spacecraft will ever be located, and Federation investigators are now shifting their focus from trying to locate the shuttle to trying to understand why and how it became lost in space. Users on social network MyEarth are sharing their ideas too, and wow are they creative! Theories for the disappearance range from ordinary hazards, like AUG sabotage or pilot error, to the truly ridiculous, like an attack by Xeon remnants secretly living on Mars, or even advanced unknown alien entities. Before its disappearance, the Temptation was a direct shuttle, exclusively flying between the Federation's Jaburo base and the Side 7 colonies Grips and Green Oasis. While investigators have cautioned that it is too early to place the blame on any one person for the shuttle's disappearance, suspicion has already begun swirling around shuttle captain and one-year war veteran Captain Bright Noah. While we here at TNN respect Captain Noah's service during the war, Federation forces records indicate that he was nearly court-martialed on several occasions, and he was allegedly involved in the theft of top-secret military equipment, 
use of child labor, including by children as young as four, the execution of prisoners of war using bazookas in direct contravention of the Antarctic Treaty, and violations of Side 6 neutrality. Even though he was born on Earth, the possibility that Captain Noah may be suffering from space madness cannot be ignored. Titan's forces in the region have been diverted to aid in the search. In an exclusive interview with TNN, Captain Basque declared that he would use whatever resources were necessary to, quote, hunt down the lost shuttle and find every last passenger aboard it, sooner or later. In other news, the lunar city of Amman was badly damaged in a tragic mining accident caused by fracking and excessive use of petite mobile suits. Luckily, Titans from the Alexandria Task Force were on hand to deal with the survivors. In order to ensure that senseless tragedies like this are not repeated, the Federation government is already working on a bill that will give more power to the Titans. That's all from us for now, but stay tuned after the break for the debut of TNN's new talk show, The Hot Seat with Kakrikon Kakuler. And you won't want to miss new episodes of Cooking with Jamaican and Behind the Goggles. And now the recap for Entering the Atmosphere. Aboard the Federation ship Hario, the pilot of last episode's mysterious mobile armor tells the captain to fly them to Earth orbit, if, that is, they want him to fight Ayug. Otherwise, he will return to the mothership, Jupitris. His bluntness and ultimatums clearly irritate the captain who, once alone, mutters about having to deal with someone straight from Jupiter. Meanwhile, Camille and Astonaji run checks on the Mark II until Astonaji shoves Camille toward the lunch cart, telling him to take a break. It's only as he's floating over that Camille notices Fa is pushing the lunch cart. She explains that everyone is so busy, she wants to help in any way she can. But Camille doesn't seem to understand why anybody would do that without being ordered to. Haro, bouncing along nearby, is still calling Camille Amaro and insisting that something is wrong with him. Grabbing a lunch off the cart, Camille moves to return to work when Fa stops him, insisting he take one of the special pilot lunches. Just give me what everyone else is having! but she is adamant. Those are the military's rules, and you should be following them. He gives in and is leaving when Fa asks him about Captain Bright. Apparently his wife and children live on Earth. What will he do? The Titans could take his family hostage. I don't know. We can't know what's going to happen. He leaves quickly after that, leaving Fa to wonder what made him so angry. Titans are still tracking the Ayug force, and Jared and Kakrakon plan to catch up in time to attack the Ayug troops as they begin to enter Earth's atmosphere. Kakrakon is pleased to be returning to Earth so soon, and Jared teases that he must have someone waiting for him. On the Argama Bridge, Bright, now a captain, is taking over Beckner's post. Beckner will be returning to the moon on the next transport, but has one final concern. Are you okay with this mission? I heard your wife and children live in Jaburo. Quattro asks to hear more about Bright's family, and we learn that he married White Base helmsperson Mirai Yashima, and they have two children, a boy and a girl. But Bright isn't worried. His wife is practically a new type herself, and they talked about him joining Ayug when they last saw each other. Back on the Hario, the mysterious man from Jupiter is demanding that his mobile armor deploy alone, without any mobile suits for support. If my Masala can do the job on its own, we have no reason to use these outdated models. Ayug forces depart the rendezvous point and set a course for Earth. 
Camille and Astonaji do final checks on the Mark II's new flying armor. Bright briefs his lieutenants and asks Quattro to rescue Mirai and the children, if they are still in Jaburo. And Fa goes to visit Camille, resting in his room in preparation. She mentions his parents, that she only just heard that they had died, and this seems to set Camille off. Voice full of emotion, he tells her he feels badly that her parents were suspected because of him, that she had to flee because of him, but that there's nothing he can do about it, nothing to be done, that he's not in his current situation because it's what he wants. Fa, on the verge of tears, leans into the doorframe. I, I don't know what I should do either. They both seem to want to comfort each other, but their own hurts get in the way. They can't help but cause each other pain. Camille finally yells at Fa to leave him alone, and she calls him an idiot before doing just that. It's not long before the mission begins, and the mobile suits launch in the first stage of the attack on Jaburo. Almost impossibly fast, the Masala flies past the Ayug forces, destroying one ship in a single shot and gone just as quickly. Emma breaks formation, taking her unit to deal with the threat, and either cannot hear or ignores the order that she return. Camille is ordered to go after her, but no other mobile suits can be spared from their formation, and the Masala has begun to pick off individual units. Bright orders the ship's guns to provide cover fire, and the mobile suits to leave their ships and enter the atmosphere as quickly as possible. Their slow pace is putting them all at risk. As Camille and Emma close in, the mobile armor suddenly transforms, changing from a ship-like shape to a more humanoid one. They are stunned, and when they freeze, the man from Jupiter takes advantage, slicing an arm off Emma's Rick Diaz with his beam saber. Quattro arrives and orders Emma back to the Argama. The man from Jupiter, underestimating Camille and the Mark II, is shocked when they are able to dodge all of his attacks. But even Quattro is nervous, thinking to himself that this mysterious pilot exceeds even Amaro's abilities. He is something altogether different. As they dogfight just outside of Earth's atmosphere, the man from Jupiter wonders to himself, what is this pressure I feel, and finally retreats, unwilling to risk the Masala getting sucked in by Earth's gravity. Then the Titans arrive near the main formation, with the Ayug force still four minutes from re-entry. Bright orders them to focus all of their attention on re-entry. The ships will cover them. On the bridge, he calculates they need a minimum of two-thirds of their mobile suits to make it to Jaburo. Quattro and Camille rush to return to the main force and find Emma there, stubbornly pushing on. Her damaged mobile suit will not be able to withstand atmospheric re-entry, but she continues to fight until Quattro drags her back to the Argama. Unlike during the One Year War, now all of the mobile suits are equipped with balutes, balloon parachutes, to shield them during re-entry. Jared and Kakrakon spot Camille's mobile suit and begin to fire, waiting until the last possible moment to deploy their own balutes. The Titan's forces are following the Ayug mobile suits down to Earth, leaving the Ayug ships to retreat unmolested. Camille is able to dodge the Titan's attacks, and Jared finally backs off, the better to keep fighting after a safe re-entry. But Kakrakon keeps chasing Camille. His balut deploys automatically, leaving him completely open to attacks from the Mark II on its flying armor. It tears open his balut, and Kakrakon's suit burns up on entering the atmosphere. Jared is left with one more person to take vengeance for and they all make their way down to the surface, to Jaburo. It was too good to last.
all those warm, fuzzy feelings <laughs> from the end <laughs> of the last episode are now replaced by quite a bit of angst. Yeah. Fa and Camille seem to be set up in direct contrast with each other in this episode. Hmm. Yeah, I kind of get that in terms of their attitudes toward doing their jobs on the ship. Did you see it in other aspects? To some degree, but let's talk about that first conversation and then... Mm -hmm. It's a pretty straightforward conversation, but I feel like there are so many undertones and so many other things going on beneath the surface. Fa walks in with the cart covered in lunches, and Astanaji has just shoved Camille over there, like, go on, kid. I know you know this girl. Like, go grab your lunch. Astanaji being an excellent wingman here. Yes. And Camille asks her, why are you doing this? And her attitude is, well, everyone is so busy... I have to help out. I can't be here and not help. There's no time to be fooling around, she says. Well, there's maybe even a feeling from Fa of like, well, I have to do something. To which Camille responds, well, I guess if you were ordered to, there's nothing to be done about it. <laughs> like, he can't understand why anybody would do anything that they weren't ordered to do. <laughs> it's the sort of reaction he's telling everyone if I have to follow all your orders like a soldier now, I'm not going to do anything unless you order me to do it. Mm. Yeah, I think there's some of that like sullen attitude, some resentment. But I also get the feeling that Camille like found himself in this position he really doesn't want to be in, where he's forced to be a soldier, and he's maybe really worried about Fa falling into the same trap. And like if she's been ordered to, if she's already in this hostile system, then there's nothing that can be done about it. But Camille also started out volunteering to be a pilot and now has no option but to continue doing it or else he'll be thrown out of the airlock. Well, so how do you interpret the little fight over his lunch? <laughs> <laughs> when he says he just wants to eat what everybody else is eating, he doesn't want the special treatment? Well, special treatment. It's what all the other pilots are eating. True. <laughs> it's not like he's the only pilot. I mean, he seems like maybe he's more comfortable as a engineer working with the other mechanics in the hangar than he is being a pilot. I suppose I just assumed all the pilots had to do that for their own mobile suits, like assist with the repair and upkeep. But you could be right. I don't know that I've noticed other pilots doing the same. I mean, Amaro did, but that was because the white base didn't have mechanics. Well, and Quattro does. That's true. That's true. We don't get to see Emma or Apolli or Roberto doing that. Mm -hmm. But it really does seem like Camille is just more enthusiastic about the engineering and the mechanics part of it. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. But we do get this contrast of Fa as fundamentally a rule follower. You know, she doesn't go beyond. It's the army's rule that you have to have this special lunch as the explanation for why he needs to do it. <laughs> and you have to follow their rules. And Camille is clearly, like, at his core, someone who questions every single rule that gets presented to him. Yeah, though I would say Fa does go a little bit beyond just what the rules are, because none of the other refugees are helping out in this way, not that we see. So Fa has indeed volunteered to be the lunch cart pusher. So I think it's less that Fa's more rule-abiding and more that Fa's more communally, collectively-minded. I was like, the ship is one big community, and I'm part of it, and this is a thing that needs to be done, so I'm going to do it. 
We also get the contrast in how the two of them deal with negative feelings, and this is going to bleed into their second big interaction of the episode. But we get it first here when she says, hey, have you heard about or thought about Captain Bright's family? Mm -hmm. Because they're all still on Earth, and what if the Titans take them hostage like they took Camille's parents, like they took Fa's parents? And this is something Fa wants to talk through or think about, and something which Camille has no desire to engage with whatsoever because he cannot do anything about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to think about it. The moment she brings it up, he gets agitated. He seems angry. I don't think he's angry at Fa particularly, mm -hmm. but he seems angry and he leaves. And she thinks that it's because he thinks he's like too important to talk to her now because he's a pilot. I think he's just avoiding a very emotional conversation that makes him feel powerless. I think he feels guilty about what happened to Fa's family and talking to her about the Titans maybe taking Bright's family hostage makes him think about that, makes him feel guilty. And because he feels powerless, it's just that much worse. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Fa's bringing this up to make him feel guilty, although he might feel that way. I don't think she is either. I think that's just her wanting to process it by talking mm -hmm. about it. They are both of them united now in their admiration for Bright, almost hero worship. We know Camille felt that at the beginning of the series. We know Fa feels that now because it was Bright who saved her. And so we know it's not that they have different attitudes towards Bright. They're both coming at this from the same feeling about Bright and his family, but then going in completely different directions. So it's a great lens through which to view their relationship with each other and how they each interact with these kinds of ideas and these kinds of feelings. Then... Fa gets lost <laughs> and runs into Emma, who then walks her back to the appropriate parts of the ship. Emma can tell that Fa is upset. She assumes, you know, lovers quarrel. She's had a fight with Camille uh, and starts trying to explain like, oh, well, Camille's under a lot of stress. In some ways, he's going to feel like safer being kind of bratty with an old friend. He's going to mm. have more of a, like, she starts explaining Camille's behavior. I thought she was just trash talking Camille. Oh. Ugh, that Camille, he's acting like a brat. I don't, I don't really see why she would trash talk him to Fa, like what the purpose of that would be, <laughs> as opposed to like trying to patch up whatever fight they're having. I think Emma's just super bad at dealing with people, certainly dealing with kids. Regardless, Fa clearly resents the effort completely of this stranger, this person Fa doesn't know at all, trying to explain Fa's relationship with Camille, who she's known for a long time and is good friends with. Possible also slight amount of jealousy? Hmm. Like, here's this woman, this pretty young woman who's shown up and is talking to me about Camille like she understands Camille. I've known Camille for years. <laughs> what can she possibly understand about Camille that I don't? Maybe, maybe. Well, and she has that line like, I understand a pilot's feelings, which obviously she doesn't. That is a ridiculous thing for her to say. <laughs> then Fa goes to talk to Camille at his room. She had not heard about his parents yet. She just found out she came to talk to him. He completely rebuffs her at first. Like, you don't have to act so sad and shocked. And she's like, what act? And then, again, we have him expressing... I feel bad that all of these horrible things have happened because of me, but there's nothing I can do about it. I can't do anything in my situation. I'm already stuck in a situation doing things that I do not want to do. 
Well, and since I started doing this, things have only gotten worse for me. Fa, on the other side, and I felt like this was very awkwardly phrased, but I get what they're trying to say. <laughs> uh, in the subtitles, it's something like, I want to comfort you, but I am just a child myself. <laughs> Which I think what they're getting at is she wants to comfort him as his friend, you know, but she doesn't really know what to do either in this situation. She is mm -hmm. also a kid with little to no life experience. Her own parents are maybe in danger. Her life is completely upended. She's not exactly in a great position to be comforting anybody. True. And neither is he. And that's sort of what they say to each other here, which I really love this scene. I think it's heartbreaking, but I love the interaction between the two of them and how honest they both are with these feelings that like they can't handle them. They can't deal with them. They maybe don't even understand them, but at least they're being honest with each other about them. Except that, and again, here's where the contrast between the two of them comes in, right? I think having come to that conclusion, Fa would just as soon have like stood there in the door talking. I think Fa feeling those feelings would still want to try to talk through them. Mm -hmm. Camille says, well, okay, if neither of us know what to do and we're both hurting and we can't help each other, leave me alone. <laughs> and look at what he's doing when Fa comes to his room. He's like standing in the dark with his shirt off and his fists clenched, like vibrating with tension. He's in a dark place right now. What they both need is some sort of wise, caring adult who can help them deal with these feelings. They're not going to get it. Nope. <laughs> Emma shows up sees that they're having this encounter and just is like, well, those kids. She has like a little smile. Again, I think she's interpreting this as like, oh, lovers quarrel. Like those young kids, I don't think she realizes what they're fighting about or the fact that it's serious. I do wonder narratively, what is the point of having her observe their fight? I think it's to rub in the fact that Emma is just useless as a role model for them. It could kind of be to emphasize the point that I just made that like adults looking at this relationship between these two teenagers are probably going to downplay its significance or seriousness. Like, oh, they're childhood friends or, oh, it's young love as if it's not a big deal <laughs> mm -hmm. when they are actually contending with some very heavy, serious emotions, none of which really gets taken seriously by the people around them. Because they're expected to behave like adults and do an adult's job. But not be treated with the respect that adults are treated with. Right. <laughs> Something I noticed this episode, ever since Fa has arrived, which was just last episode, but throughout the entirety of this episode, Haro is with her, not with Camille. Yet I think that Haro remains an element of Camille. Like Haro is still part of Camille's spirit. Oh, I don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> But you think Fa has become the, the keeper, the guardian of that part of Camille? She's also representative of his past, which we know his time on the ship has kind of been a turning point in from child to adult mm -hmm. transition. And so perhaps this is part of why Camille, while he appreciated seeing Fa again, resents her continued role on the ship and in his life because Fa is an artifact of Camille's childhood, a reminder of it. And in moving past the trauma of his parents' death, he's created this pseudo-adult life for himself, this persona and role in the crew that Fa 
does not fit in and that does not fit into the chameleon-shaped hole left in Fa's mind. He cannot be with Fa the person he needs to be for the Argama. Or he hasn't figured out how to be. I wouldn't say that he can't. He hasn't yet figured out how to do that. That's very wise. Well, that's a common enough human thing, right? That you you grow older and you change and then you try to continue having relationships with people who you began those friendships when you were both children and you're both so different now. And how do you navigate those relationships? How do you adjust to the fact that you're both very different than you were now that you're grown adult people? So do you think that Cacricon deserves a tribute? Kind of, but I'm not sure. Like, we don't really know Cacricon, but he's been around <laughs> and he was trying to get vengeance for... Um, kind of for Lila. I think Cacricon just wanted, like, generalized vengeance for the insult to the Titan's honor represented by the Mark II. I think that's why when he and Jared are talking about it, they both want to get the Mark II, but for Jared, it's about Lila. And for Capricorn, it's about like pride of the Titans. He's just been around so long. He feels like he should be more important than he is, you know? So while I don't think that Capricorn is a significant enough player in here for him to get a tribute in this episode, I did want to talk about how he opens the episode by holding up a sign that says, I'm going to die because he's like... He's so happy to go back to Earth. He's going to see his lover again. He's like on his last mission before retirement and showing everybody pictures of his wife and kids. I was actually going to ask, why is it everybody's got lovers and nobody's got a wife or kids <laughs> or parents or best friends? Like just kind of an obsession with sexy young women. Bright's got a wife. That's true. And kids. Mm -hmm. But Bright's not going to die, I hope. <laughs> she hopes. Why are you going to be like that right in the same episode <laughs> that I'm all excited because we have Captain Bright and we get to get rid of Captain Beckner. Good riddance. Uh, he's so much better. Yeah. Oh, I love Bright captaining. And then we find out that Bright and Mirai got married so we can just pretend that whole Slegger Law <laughs> incident never happened. Just erase it from our memories. I assume they pretend it never happened. And then when I'm feeling so happy, you have to be like, Maybe he's doomed. <laughs> and Tom has a smile that he uses when he's trying not to give spoilers. It looks evil. It looks mean, like he's plotting something terrible. He's trying not to laugh as he hears this description <laughs> of himself. It is absolutely it's, true. It's just that Gundam is full of doom. He has a mustache now, but he hasn't yet uh, started twirling it when he uh, has the <laughs> evil smile on. It is nice to see the back of Beckner. I did like his goodbye, though. Oh, that was sort of sweet. Yeah, he um, he's clearly still got a thing for Emma. She clearly knows that he does. I don't think either of them have admitted this out loud. It seems like maybe he's going to when he's leaving the ship, but then they get interrupted by Fa getting lost and wandering into where they are. <laughs> well, they keep getting interrupted a little bit by people going by with like crates of cargo. And the animation does a neat thing where... The people carrying the cargo pass not behind Beckner and Emma relative to the camera, but between them and the camera. It interrupts our view of them at the same time that it's interrupting their conversation. 
And he can't maintain eye contact with her. He keeps like looking around at whatever there is to look at. And he's like, it's um, it's a shame to <clears throat> separate myself from such a talented and skilled subordinate. That's why I'm sad about this. <laughs> right. It's one of those conversations where most of it is unsaid. And you don't entirely realize how bad at captaining Beckner is until you see Bright back in his element in the captain's chair on the bridge of a warship. Oh, it's so good. He's so decisive. So decisive and like constantly on top of everything. And he gives clear, specific orders. Whereas Beckner was like, the thing, do it. Bright is like, have the mobile suits descend to below the horizontal line of the ship, then open fire with all batteries on the enemy fleet. And Bright doesn't seem flustered. Beckner often seemed flustered. We love Bright. Welcome back, Bright. It's clear, although it's never discussed, Beckoner seems to understand this as well. Oh, yeah. Beckoner has no hard feelings about losing this ship. None at all. He is off the argument at the first opportunity. Speaking of Bright, why does Quattro know how many children <laughs> Bright has? It was a lucky guess, he said ominously. I had two different ideas about this. The first one was that possibly... Quattro has been keeping an eye on the entirety of the White Base crew <laughs> ever since the One Year War. It seems like a thing he would do. We know that the Ayug has been trying to keep tabs on Amuro, or at least trying to find him. And we know they're working with Kai. So it's not much of a stretch to assume that they are, in fact, keeping tabs on all the old White Base guys. No word on Sela or Job John. This was my conspiracy theory moment during the episode, but I was also wondering if Quattro perhaps uh, considers Bright and Mirai's children an experiment and what happens when like new types have kids, but then raise those kids on Earth. Are the kids going to be new types? Do you have to go to space? Does it matter? Like, Yeah. So I was intrigued by Bright's comment, my senses aren't as sharp as they once were, which like, buddy, you're 26. Your senses cannot have started going downhill that fast. I'm wondering if for Bright being on the white base on a bridge full of new types, there was a kind of like amplification or referred <laughs> new type ability. Contact high from the new, <laughs> from the new types. <laughs> yes. There's so much new type radiation going around. That is very far-fetched, Tom. I'm just saying. It's one possible explanation for why Bright feels like his senses are not as sharp as they used to be. It could also be all the trauma. And then we have our new mysterious new type, who I shall call Headband. I was going to call him Jupiter. This is his third appearance. And still no name. We know that the ship he's on is called the Hario. <laughs> Isn't that a kind of candy? That's Haribo. Um... And they make gummies, <laughs> gummy candy. And that he came from the mothership Jupitris and that he pilots the Masala mobile armor, which he himself helped to develop. And we know from the captain or commander of the Hario that this mysterious man came directly from Jupiter. And he expresses some frustration about this. Like, why would they send me some guy straight from Jupiter? Which to me felt a little bit like, like, ugh, they sent me this this guy who's been out in the colonies and who doesn't know how to behave in society anymore. Like, <laughs> A little bit. And um, 
Jupiter Headband says the same thing when he's talking about his experience of transitioning back into the Earth sphere. He calls it the secular world, which makes it sound like he's just returned from like a religious retreat or ascetic hermitage. And our only other experience of Jupiter so far is Shalia Bull, when we meet him in First Gundam, has just returned from a pretty long-term mission to Jupiter. And there is a sense there that he is also a different kind of person, a man apart. And then we have Quattro's reaction to him while they're fighting, which is he calls him a chigao type, so a different type, something that's not even like a new type. Or at least different from any new type that Quattro has encountered before. He's not an Amuro. He's not a Lala. He's not a Camille. There's something special about this one. I think there's something special about Jupiter or possibly just going deeper into space. The further into space you are, the further removed from Earth and its gravity, (laughs) the stronger these effects are on you, perhaps. I don't know how much Quattro has thought about it. I wonder if it's scary for him to realize that, oh, I think I'm so great, but all the humans living even deeper into space are potentially like exponentially stronger in these abilities than I am. Though Quattro, if he is in fact Shar. He is. <laughs> it's not a question anymore. <laughs> it's been determined. Shar had to come to terms with not being the most powerful new type in the room a long time ago because that was his experience with Amuro, with Lala. Practically every new type that Shar ever encountered was stronger than he was. And we remember that his solution there is he either needs to be able to control you or he needs to be able to kill you. This is what he says to Amuro at the end. You're too powerful. If you won't join me, I have to kill you. And perhaps the Chigao Taipu is an acknowledgement of that. Like, oh, this guy is really strong. I'm going to have to do something about this. (laughs) One thing you pointed out when we were watching First Gundam is that every different new type seems to express their new type abilities in a different kind of way. They have different specialties, different mutant powers. Although they did bring back a recurring visual cue, which is that new types are always very comfortable in space and in low or zero gravity. Some fed officers get mad at Headband because he wants to take the Masala on the mission himself, no backup mobile suits. And they feel like that's very insulting to to (laughs) them and their mobile suits and their men. And one of them takes a swing at him and he just pushes off the floor and floats up out of the way (laughs) very calmly and easily, clearly entirely unmussed by this whole situation. I was reminded of Lala floating down the halls as a whole bunch of other people insist on walking for some reason. This is a blink and you'll miss it kind of thing. And in fact, even if you weren't blinking, you would probably still miss it unless you were going through the episode frame by frame, like maybe I do sometimes. But when Headband first appears in this episode, he's getting off of an elevator with the commander of the Hario. And they walk past a pair of Federation officers, one man and one woman, who are having a chat. And from their body posture, it looks like they might be flirting with each other. But as soon as Headband walks by, the woman, her head whips around so that she can watch him walk. And the guy she's with looks visibly put out by this. Headband is very pretty. He's got that purple hair thing going on that, you know, (laughs) is popular in Gundam. Very tall, 
His first appearance was actually, I think, back in episode three in one of the briefing scenes with some of the other Titans pilots. And all you see is the back of his head. But that purple hair is unmistakable. And the masala is so destructive. I was reminded of nothing so much as Amuro when Amuro has the first couple of times that he takes out whole ships. Mm -hmm. Only the masala does it without having to get close. Amuro, for the most part, had to get in close and use his beam sabers if he was going to destroy whole ships. The masala can just shoot at them. Yeah. And do it. It's like the Elmeth, except it's not even difficult for him. Like Lala struggled to do that. I don't think there are bits. I think no. all of the fire originates from the masala. I mean, the, the benefit of the Elmeth, you can surround the enemy with one pilot. It's mm -hmm. pretty brilliant. It was just very difficult to do. But the masala seems plenty strong. And then it transforms. And it's a giant mobile suit. Uh, I'm sure it's meant to be a scary moment. Emma and Camille both freeze. The screen goes pink. That <laughs> plays the shocking music. But Emma looks exactly like surprised Pikachu <laughs> in this scene where she's frozen and pink and her mouth's hanging open. Total surprised Emma Chew. Emma Chewy. <laughs> uh, that's good. I think we need a surprised Emma Chewy meme. <laughs> yeah, and that brings us back to Emma sucks in this episode. God, she's just the worst. She can't follow orders. She can't fight. After all her lectures to Camille. Seriously, this is Emma. Miss, you must follow orders exactly all the time or you're going to get beat up. She abandons not just the formation, but she's on point in the formation. She abandons her like leadership role in the formation, which is fundamentally important, to go chase this random mobile suit. Yeah. Plus... Later in the episode, Kakrakon's death from being slightly too close to another mobile suit during the descent shows us how important the formation is. It's not just for prettiness. If they get too close together, they will die. Then she doesn't fight particularly well, which would be the one thing that would make all this forgivable. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, people will forgive a lot if you're successful. <laughs> Camille and Quattro are both living examples of that, yes. Uh, Jared is the inverse. Yes. Her mobile suit gets damaged. She gets ordered back multiple times, actually, both before the mobile suit gets damaged and after. Mm -hmm. She refuses to follow orders. Quattro has to drag right. her back. He physically drags her mobile suit back to the Argama. And she's all like, I could have done the reentry. My mobile suit's not that badly damaged. Mm. And Bright is like, excuse me? <laughs> You were under orders. I don't know what kind of ship Captain Beckner was running here. <laughs> but on Bright Noah's Argama, there will be no special treatment for pretty young lieutenants. With good eyesight. I guess that's so far been her biggest contribution to the Argama. Yep. And Bright threatens her with a correction. This would be correction classic. None of this new correction nonsense. Yeah, this is a correction you get for actually doing something that endangered the whole crew and disobeying orders. And you probably only get it once. There were a lot of really beautiful compositions in the way that the fight was animated. Uh, just from the moment all the mobile suits launched, it had a feeling of like 
It felt grand and epic and exciting and important in a way that even larger actions with more mobile suits in first Gundam rarely ever managed to. I put a lot of the credit for that on the music, but the animation was definitely doing work too. There's great sense of scale. I think especially when they can show you like part of the curvature of the earth in the frame, uh, you get a sense of how massive the earth is and how massive this group of mobile suits going on this mission must be. There was one shot in particular I really liked where Quattro is on the radio, well, radio, whatever short range communication they have, and is getting orders to go after the Masala. It's like a split frame, and they're each on one side, Bright's on the right, and Quattro's on the left, and they're both facing each other, facing toward the middle. And then after Bright stops talking to him, Quattro gets the full frame, and is l- when it cuts, he's facing the opposite direction, and it gives you a sense of movement. It feels like he's suddenly whipped around <laughs> like because of some new threat on the battlefield. <laughs> and then we have the descent itself, which this didn't hit me at first. There's Tom all the way. Tom looked at this and he said, this is like paratroopers. And it totally is. Because I assume, I don't, this is a thing I will be researching this week. <laughs> but tactically, there's a lot of stuff that happens before the paratroopers jump. But once they jump, they can't really do anything else. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're falling through the sky. <laughs> like, there will be stuff to do when you land, <laughs> but you have very limited maneuverability while you're up there and all of the mobile suits in their balutes can't really maneuver at all, which puts the Mark II like head and shoulders above all the rest of them because he's got the protection of the wave rider. Yeah, it, it's called a flying armor by some and a wave rider by others. He's got the, the protection of the wave rider, but he has mobility and none of the people in balutes can move. <laughs> Even before they actually blow the balutes and start the descent, the things that they're wearing, the balut systems, have a little like compartment on the front of the mobile suit and another one on the back that makes them look very much like parachutes, especially old school, like World War II era parachutes. Very bulky, probably makes them less able to fight. Yeah, probably limits their mobility to some degree. Part of why they're so vulnerable during this operation. And we have the end of the episode, which is all of them falling to earth. And you get this overwhelming sense of quiet. Like we've just had battle. We're just about to have more (laughs) the moment they land. But here's this weird moment of peace in the midst of that. And then it cuts to what they look like from earth. And they all look like shooting stars falling over the jungle. Which is a visual that the show has used before. When the Mont Blanc was destroyed, the wreckage falling through the atmosphere also looked like shooting stars. There's a bit of brutal calculus in this episode when Bright is talking about the drop operation after they've been attacked. And he says, we just need two thirds to make it through. And that'll be enough for the operation to continue. But that's the kind of horrible calculus that military commanders have to make all the time, that generals have to make all the time. Mm -hmm. Estimates of the survivability of a particular action and whether it's worth the cost in lives and material. Yep. And this is a calculation Bright has already made for himself, for his own life, because his family is maybe down there in Jalboro and about to be attacked. 
But if they can win this battle, cut the head off of the Titans, maybe it's worth it. At the very least, he's got a Mirai to depend on. (laughs) And when it comes to people who I would want to help a bunch of kids survive war-torn Jaburo, Mirai is up there. Oh, yeah. Well, and she knows that he was looking for an opportunity to go to Ayug. She would probably have assumed that since she hasn't heard from him in a while, (laughs) that's what's (laughs) going on at this moment. Yeah, they talked about it. They had a real honest adult conversation about Bright's career goals. Right. Well, I want to do this thing that I think could put us in a lot of danger, but is the I think is the right thing to do. Yeah, that felt so cool to me as a thing to include in the episode. His mention that they talked about it, that he didn't just like, ah, I wanted to join Aug. It's going to be a surprise for the wife. <laughs> <laughs> going to be real awkward for her at the next Wives of Officers Ball in Jaburo. I wonder if they still have that robot. Are Bright's kids getting juice and soft serve? I'm sure it's been updated by now. This week, we research and discuss the Carmon Line, a brief history of paradrop operations, and real-world balutes. Besides being the name of this episode of Mobile Suit Breakdown, the Carmon Line is also an actual thing, although by actual I mean theoretical, and by thing I mean idea. It is the point in the Earth's atmosphere, 100 kilometers above sea level, where we say that outer space begins. Sort of. Because it's not like the atmosphere abruptly stops up there at 100 kilometers above the surface. The atmosphere just gets thinner and thinner the farther you go from the planet's surface until it is so thin that it might as well not be there. If you include the exosphere, where the molecules that might form atmospheric gases are still bound to the planet by gravity but are too thinly dispersed to form into gases, then outer space doesn't start until 10,000 kilometers from the surface. On the other hand, if you listen to national governments that like to use outer space and the rule that says national airspace stops where outer space begins to fly high-altitude missions over other countries, then you might put the dividing line even lower, like at 80 kilometers. And coincidentally, that is where NASA and the U.S. Air Force define the boundary of space. (laughs) And that gives you a hint to why the boundary between Earth and space, wherever you choose to put it and whatever you choose to call it, is so important. And why it would be even more important in the universal century. Because you can't have a society that's structured around hard distinctions between those who are born on Earth and those who are born in space, unless you also have a precise understanding of the jurisdictional boundary of Earth. (laughs) The Karman line, or whatever its universal century equivalent might be called, is an effort to provide exactly that. But the 100-kilometer Karman line was not chosen just because 100 is an easy number to remember. There is a rational reason to put the line there, or at least around there. And the person who suggested it, Todor von Karman, was a Hungarian-born physicist, engineer, and mathematician who stands out in history as one of the 20th century's most important scientists, largely thanks to his work in theoretical aerodynamics. He was born and educated in Budapest. He helped the German Empire build an early helicopter during World War I, one that was intended to replace those dangerously flammable hydrogen-filled observation balloons that Nina researched back in episode 1.23, Battle in the Age of Mobile Suits. 
Then in the 1930s, alarmed by the rise of fascism in Europe, Carman accepted a position as director of a California Institute of Technology lab. He worked on rocketry research for the U.S. military during World War II, and in 1944, he was one of the founders of the famous Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory, while we're talking about it, as Nina pointed out to me, is just a few miles from Anaheim, California, and it's probably the reason why Anaheim Electronics has that name. So, here's the actual significance of the Karman line. Atmospheric flight and orbital flight are distinguished by how they overcome Earth's gravity. Orbital flight requires the craft to travel fast enough that the centrifugal part of its motion balances out the downward pull of gravity. Fast enough is also known as orbital velocity, and it varies depending on the distance from the Earth. On the other hand, atmospheric flight uses airflow over the wings of the craft to create lift sufficient to balance the pull of gravity. The faster the craft travels relative to the air that it's in, the more air gets forced over the wings, and the more lift gets produced. But if the air gets thinner, that means less air passes over the wings, and less lift gets produced. You can balance the two sides of this equation. You can balance the decreased lift from thinner air by increasing speed. So, the higher in the atmosphere you take your aircraft, the faster you need to go in order to maintain enough lift to keep the plane in the air. Eventually, if you keep ascending, the air is going to get so thin that the speed you would need to travel in order to generate enough lift to maintain altitude will be equal to orbital velocity. That's so interesting and cool. And at that point, the lift is irrelevant because you're not doing atmospheric flight anymore. You're doing space flight. Karman was the first to publish equations calculating where this point was. And as he himself put it, this is the point where aerodynamics stops and astronautics begins. And at that point, that is the Karman line. Sort of. Because <laughs> science is messy. The atmosphere is ever-changing, and there are other factors to consider, like the makeup of the air at different altitudes and the size of the wings. All of these variables change the result of the equation a little bit, not a significant amount. So Karman ended up proposing 100 kilometers. And for the most part, the scientific community accepted it as a compromise solution. Plus, it is an easy number to remember. And to bring all of this back to Gundam, it is contact with the air that causes a mobile suit or anything else doing re-entry to become superheated. No air, no superheating. And above the Karman line, there just isn't enough air for superheating to happen. So when we talk about Ayug storming the atmosphere... We are really talking about breaching the Karman line and crossing that hard boundary between space and Earth. As we watched the Ayug mobile suits enter Earth's atmosphere and deploy their balutes, it was easy to imagine them as paratroopers jumping from a plane and descending on Jaburo. So this seemed like an appropriate time for a brief history of what I have learned is called paradrop operations. That is the technical term. Not paratrooping? No, that is what I initially searched. <laughs> but no, that's not correct. The idea of paradrop operations dates back to the late 1700s. Just a few months after the first manned hot air balloon flight, Benjamin Franklin wrote, 5,000 balloons capable of raising two men each would not cost more than five ships of the line. 
And where is the prince who can afford so to cover his country with troops for its defense, as that 10,000 men descending from the clouds might not, in many places, do an infinite deal of mischief before a force could be brought together to repel them? Isn't that amazing? That is so amazing. I'm imagining 5,000 balloons carrying an army of 10,000 men drifting <laughs> across the sky. <laughs> well, but I think 1700s technology. Mm -hmm. This is pre-railroad, which means that in order to counter such a force, you would need to gather up your not standing army and then march them across country to wherever the balloonist regiment had descended. In a best case scenario, you can send some cavalry, but like, <laughs> uh, but the first combat use of paratroopers was, well, I have two conflicting sources on this. One says that it was during World War I, in 1918 to be precise, by a single Italian lieutenant who dropped behind the Austro-Hungarian lines on a reconnaissance and sabotage mission, followed by a few more soldiers in the following days, but still a very small group. The other source dates the first true paratroop drop to 1927, also crediting Italy. But this was something that many countries all over the world were simultaneously working on. The first large-scale use of paratroopers was in World War II by the Germans in 1940, and other armies soon followed. Hitler actually ordered an end to German paradrop operations after their attack on the island of Crete which was held by the British at the time and led to very heavy casualties on the German side. Which is something I'd like to read more about at some point, because you'd think the benefit of pair drop operations is that they're sneaky. Everyone guards their perimeter, but they don't expect the enemy to come up behind them with no warning. Uh, and ideally, you take the enemy position so quickly due to surprise that casualties are minimal. But apparently this one didn't work out that way. Sorry, I'm still thinking about Balloonists. <laughs> and your comment about cavalry made me wonder if you could make a balloon large enough to hold a horse. You could airdrop in a cavalry regiment. <laughs> Can you imagine the training those horses would have to undergo to not just like die of fright? <laughs> Paradrop operations were a significant part of the invasion of Normandy, where British and American paratroopers were dropped to capture strategically valuable bridges and traffic junctions. The largest pair drop operation ever was as part of Operation Market Garden, which led to the liberation of Belgium and Allied capture of some important ports on the mouth of the Rhine. The last large pair drop operation was during the Suez Crisis in 1951, so that would have been the British dropping paratroopers into Egypt. They continued to be used in war throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and are still in use now though in a much more limited way ever since the introduction of the helicopter. If you think about how a helicopter works, you don't need an airfield, so in that way it's similar to dropping paratroopers, but you can set troops down at a very specific location without needing to give them all the special additional training paratroopers require or worry about them missing the drop zone, which is a common problem in nighttime drops, especially before GPS technology. Are you just That would be such a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was. You're looking at your map like, okay. And then you're looking down at the ground like, okay, it's completely black. I can't <laughs> see my map. I can't turn on a light because then they'll shoot me. And my compass says I'm looking north. Yep. Yeah. Uh, a couple of the sources I read mentioned paratroopers often just linked up with whoever they could find nearby. <laughs> 
because they frequently got separated. They frequently didn't all land close enough to the drop zone to connect to each other. And so it just became a matter of like finding a friendly face Mm -hmm. (laughs) and getting by until you were extracted or could get back to your army. Another reason for the decreasing use of paradrop operations includes improvements in air defense systems, i.e. it became much easier for your enemy to shoot you out of the sky before your paratroopers had a chance to jump. This includes what are called man-portable air defense systems, like the Stinger missile, which give small groups of soldiers the capability to fire a missile capable of destroying a large aircraft. These are mobile and relatively inexpensive compared to other air defense systems, and so even groups as small as platoons, so 15 to 45 soldiers, have them. They're widely dispersed over the battlefield, and airdrop operations are especially vulnerable. They have to fly relatively slowly and smoothly while the paratroopers are making the jump. It's not like they can do evasive maneuvers. <laughs> it's no coincidence that the heyday of paradropping operations was before the emergence of modern radar. Paratroopers are typically dropped behind enemy lines to quickly and stealthily capture or sabotage important targets, bridges, sections of train track, sometimes whole villages or specific people. They're also used for reconnaissance on the enemy, troop numbers, deployment, movement, etc., or to establish, and this is a new word for me, an airhead. If you've heard the term beachhead before, it's basically the same thing, but for airdrops rather than ship landings. An area in hostile territory is seized and held so that more teams and material can be landed. Paratroopers are dropped at or near the place they are meant to operate, the drop zone and are usually dropped from a height of 100 to 400 meters, approximately 330 to 1,300 feet. They carry some weapons and gear with them, but if needed, other supplies are dropped in containers at the same time. Starting with the Vietnam War, we see the use of high-altitude paradrops. These come in two flavors, Halo and Hey-Ho? <laughs> H-A-L-O for high-altitude low-opening, and H-A-H-O for high-altitude high-opening. These drops take place at a height of 4,600 to 11,000 meters, which is 15,000 to 35,000 feet, high enough that the paratroopers require supplemental oxygen and special clothing to keep from getting frostbite. The point of flying up that high is to get out of the range of surface-to-air missiles. The high or low opening references the altitude at which the parachute is opened. Halo is used for delivering equipment, supplies, and personnel. A paratrooper free falls until they're as low as 915 meters, 3,000 feet, above the ground before deploying their parachute. The high downward speed, lack of forward movement, or at least like relative lack of forward movement, and very small amount of metal on each paratrooper makes them incredibly difficult to detect by radar. Halo also reduces time spent in the air. They are both harder to spot and spend less time vulnerable. High-altitude high-opening is used exclusively with personnel and involves opening the parachute only 10 to 15 seconds after the jump, at around 8,200 meters, 27,000 feet or so. There are two main benefits. The first is that a skilled paratrooper has a high degree of control over their movement in the air and can cover more than 65 kilometers about 40 miles, from the moment they jump to the moment they land. And while Halo is for the most part very stealthy, 
The sound of the parachute opening at low altitude is very loud and can lead to them being detected. High altitude, high opening avoids this issue. After my reading, I cannot help but look at this attack on Jaburo in a very different light. <laughs> hmm. How so? We already heard some of the arguments of some of our characters about whether or not to do this, but the method in which they're doing it feels... <laughs> I'm critical of their choice of methods. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first, lack of stealth, right? They've already been found out before they've even gotten everybody out into space and begun the entry into the atmosphere. And it's not as if there's multiple viable targets. Everybody knows they're going for Jaburo. <laughs> Everyone can tell immediately based on where they're doing their reentry, like, oh, obviously Jaburo. Mm -hmm. So no element of surprise. And even if the Titans in space are not able to communicate that to Jaburo on the surface, it's broad daylight. They will probably notice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we weren't expecting a meteor shower. The troops in the Balutes are incredibly vulnerable. Uh, I don't know at what altitude they remove or destroy their Balutes. Uh, what's a safe fall height for a mobile suit? Uh, you know. <laughs> but while they are in the Balutes, they are very vulnerable. And it seems like it takes practically no damage at all to puncture a balut, and if the balut is destroyed, so is the mobile suit. That's what happens to Kakrikon. Presumably, once they're low enough that they don't have to worry about the superheating, that's mm -hmm. no longer the case. But yeah, <laughs> it's their only defense while they're in that zone. Uh, also, as we pointed out, the main use of paratroop operations, even at the time that the show was being written by the 80s, is for very specific targets. Get in quickly and stealthily, capture or destroy whatever you need to capture or destroy. Jaburo's value is symbolic and political. They aren't sabotaging anything of value. They discussed outright that this is now a rear base. It's not where they do new technology development or even build any of the new stuff. It used to be important and everyone remembers that, but it's not important anymore. <laughs> And for AU, this is a massive investment of resources. They've got something like 80 mobile suits doing this drop. And the plan is to just abandon all of those mobile suits on Earth. I suppose in summation, while this mission may look like a pair drop operation, uh, if it is, it's a very poorly thought out one. The moment the Balutes, those inflatable re-entry devices used by both the Titans and Ayug to drop mobile suits through the atmosphere showed up, Nina guessed that the word was a portmanteau of balloon and parachute. And she was exactly right. In fact, Balutes, or balloon parachutes, are a real thing and have existed in the real world since the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company invented them back in 1958. They really do get used in atmospheric re-entry and have been since at least 1961, when the Gemini re-entry module used a balut as part of its landing procedure. But these real-world balutes differ from Gundam's version in a couple of very important ways, so let's examine these devices. A balut functions like a conventional parachute, 
it gets deployed by a payload moving fast through the atmosphere, and the balut traveling through the air creates drag that slows down the payload. Unlike the way they were depicted in Gundam, balutes deploy behind, so in the case of re-entry that means above, the payload. Really, just imagine a parachute, but it's shaped like a balloon, or a teardrop. Because of this unique shape, a balut catches less air and creates less drag than a normal parachute, which means it will slow the payload down more gradually than a regular parachute would. It also means that the balut will suffer less strain than a conventional parachute, and the balut shape is inherently more durable than a parachute. That means you can deploy a balut earlier, when the payload is traveling at speeds that would absolutely shred a normal parachute. If you're worried about heat, the balut can be made from heat-resistant materials. One reference I found talked about making them out of a silicone ceramic wire mesh. Cool. And one of those would be capable of surviving deployment even at hypersonic speeds. For most applications, though, you are still probably going to need a regular parachute to slow the payload down enough for a safe landing. But that comes after the balut has done its job. If any of this is hard to visualize, you should check out the show notes, where we will include links to videos of real-world balutes in action. Balutes have to be inflated before they start working, and there are two ways to do that. Either they are built with ram-air scoops that force air from the atmosphere passing over the balut into the body of the device, thus passively inflating the balut once the payload is already in the atmosphere. Or they can be inflated while still in space using gas canisters. This, by the way, appears to be how the balutes in Gundam work, because we know Jared was able to inflate one during testing while they were still in vacuum. So they must use some kind of gas. And you can see what looks like gas piping on the balut equipment that the mobile suits are wearing. Real-world balutes are stabilized by a device called, and I swear this is the real term, a toroidal burble fence. <laughs> Burble fence sounds like the name of a defensive spell. Burble fence, go! A burble fence is an inflated ring shaped a bit like an onion ring or a donut that goes around the widest part of the balut and ensures that air flows evenly around the balut. It helps it stay stable. Balutes can also be used by spacecraft in aerobraking or aero capture. Maneuvers where a spacecraft enters the atmosphere of a planet and uses drag from the atmosphere to either change its trajectory, that's aerobraking, or slow it down enough that it enters orbit around the planet, that's aerocapture. This application showed up in fiction at least as early as the 1984 movie and sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, 2010, The Year We Made Contact. A movie that you probably didn't even know existed, and yet, <laughs> somehow, starred Helen Mirren, John Lithgow, and Roy Scheider, who is the guy from Jaws. What? Yeah. It was not directed <laughs> by Kubrick, though. Well, and that would have been Helen Mirren considerably earlier in her career. It's true. It's true. It's pre-Oscar. <laughs> but there are three Oscar nominees and one Oscar winner in this movie. <laughs> Did you find this on a list of like terrible movies with Oscar winners in them? No, it shows up in all of the discussions about Balutes. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the big motion picture debut for Balutes. <laughs> Critics call it fine, but what about Gundam's Balutes? 
Besides being a gas-inflated balloon used in re-entry, these mobile suit-sized inflatable papasan chairs don't sound much like the real balloots I've been describing. They don't even have a toroidal burble fence. I should have let myself laugh during that, but I didn't want to <laughs> break. It was clearly a pause for laughter, and I'm sitting here trying to hold my laughter back. <laughs> I was also thinking, I think they look more like extra-large beanbag chairs than papasan chairs, but that's just me. You guys will have to tell us which you think is the more apt description. <laughs> Since 2009, scientists and engineers working on spacecraft have been testing experimental inflatable atmospheric reentry devices, very much like the Gundam Balut. These are inflated by compressed gas, and they go ahead of the payload. Their large surface area plus heat-resistant material allows one to function both as heat shield and air brake. They get packed away nice and tight inside a compartment on the spacecraft, and then they burst open when it's time for re-entry. NASA is calling their current version of this the HIAD, or Hypersonic Inflatable Aerodynamic Decelerator, and they classify it as an inflatable aeroshell. This is pretty cutting-edge stuff, and while it may not be a balut exactly, a lot of how it functions is a perfect match for the Gundam balutes. So we've got this real thing called a balut, that is not very much like a Gundam balut. And we've got this thing that works just like a Gundam balut, but is called something entirely else. It feels like there's a missing link, doesn't it? Well, yes. <laughs> well, there is. <laughs> you really didn't need me to set that up for you. <laughs> <laughs> Back in 1976, a team of Japanese rocket scientists published the paper Feasibility Study of Buoyant Venus Station Placed by Inflated Balloon Entry in which they proposed an orbiting laboratory for Venus that would use a cocoon balut system. Unlike a tethered balut, the ones I've been talking about, the cocoon balut would deploy ahead of the payload and expand to envelop it, providing both drag to slow down the craft and protection from the heat generated by atmospheric entry. And hey, doesn't that sound exactly like Gundam's balut? This idea was explored further through the 80s, and it's almost certainly where Gundam got the idea. The lead author on that paper was prominent rocket scientist Dr. Ryojiro Akiba, who, in a neat connection to my earlier research piece, would go on to win the Von Karman Prize from the International Academy of Astronautics in 2008. Cocoon balutes fell out of favor in the late 80s due to concerns about stability, durability, and heat resistance compared to other designs. Hey, those are some of the problems we saw in the episode. <laughs> they enjoyed a brief resurgence in popularity during the early 2000s after the Columbia shuttle disaster, when NASA and some private space companies proposed cocoon balutes as space lifeboats. As far as I can tell, those projects were eventually all rolled into the inflatable aeroshell designs of the 2010s, probably due to the same feasibility problems that scuttled the cocoon balutes in the first place. If you start looking into the real history of balutes, you are going to find a rash of articles from 2017, with titles like Gundam inspires researchers to create safer Earth re-entry methods from space, or anime helps advance real science, claiming that a team of Japanese scientists were inspired by Zeta Gundam to invent and deploy a real balut on a microsatellite called Egg, implying also that this is the first real balut ever. 
And since you just listened to my history of balutes, you know that isn't remotely true. What's worse, the device they're talking about isn't even a true balute. It's one of those inflatable aeroshells like NASA's HIAD. All these articles cite to the same now-deleted Asahi Shimbun article, but I was able to find it in the Internet Archive. The original is in English, and it's titled Gundam Anime Mirrored in Safer Spacecraft Reentry Method. As the original title suggests, it doesn't actually claim that Egg was inspired by Gundam. It merely uses Zeta's balutes as a handy metaphor for explaining how the inflatable aeroshell functions to an audience that is presumably more familiar with Gundam than state-of-the-art atmospheric reentry techniques. I find those anime helps advance real science type articles really sad, because at some point someone decided that it made a better story, one that would get a lot more clicks, if they pretended that the creators of Zeta Gundam were creative visionaries who dreamed up brilliant new technologies out of the ether, decades before they ever occurred to real scientists. When this is really a story about how the creators of Zeta Gundam earnestly loved the real science of space travel and exploration and worked incredibly hard to represent it accurately in their giant robots space opera. That is the Gundam that I love most. Next time on episode 2.13, Appetite for Mass Destruction, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 12 and in the jailhouse now. Who speaks for the trees? You know what this reminds me of? The sinking of the Titanic. Pilots and man-children first. Camille's tubular surfing adventure. Rekoa gets the Lala music treatment. Shar is projecting. You know what this really reminds me of? The fall of Saigon. Jared's all-purpose vengeance, TM. And the damage is internal. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, The sudden appearance of transforming mobile suits has nothing to do with the earth-shattering success of the Transformers toy line and cartoon that came out the year before Zeta. On any busy street corner, we will totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening.
タバッタラタッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバッタラタバ Paratroopery, paratroopistism. If an army horse becomes a army balloon horse, is it technically a Pegasus? Ho 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 ho. Maneuvers where a spacecraft enters the atmosphere of a planet and uses drag from the atmosphere to either make helicopter sounds. <laughs> oh no, they're doing paradrop operations. <laughs> Sorry, you said prior earlier. Yes, I did. <laughs> that is the Gundam that I love most. <laughs> you don't have to include that. <laughs> I might, though. <laughs>